Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Last year, Japan only accepted about 200 refugees with full rights to live and work. But many foreigners who make it into the country don't have that security and live in fear of being suddenly detained. And worst of all, the rules are about to get even tighter. And if you haven't watched Oppenheimer yet, forgive me for this little spoiler. The film depicts the test of the first ever atomic bomb in the middle of the New Mexican desert. Tourists are flocking to the area in droves to pay homage to the scientist and the work that he began. But first. Not so long ago, you'd have been forgiven for thinking manufacturing was a dirty word. Richer countries were happy to offshore industrial work to developing countries and move up the so-called value chain. Those developing countries also had their own aspirations to become knowledge economies. Making stuff just wasn't that desirable. But times are changing, and politicians can't stop talking about it. Britain's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, recently hailed a brand-new battery-making factory secured by a handy amount of state aid. It's billions of pounds of investment and thousands of jobs, so it's great news. For over a year, America has been aggressively pursuing semiconductor production, pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into subsidies and incentives. I'm not going to go sign the Ships and Science Act, and once again, I promise you, we're leading the world again for the next decades. Thank you. Manufacturing seems to be all the rage all of a sudden. The question is, should it be? So all over the world, there is an industrial arms race underway to boost domestic manufacturing. Christian Odendahl is The Economist's European economics editor. Especially the high-tech stuff, the green goods and so forth. But there are significant economic dangers for the world if that continues down this path unchecked. Okay, before we get to the dangers, what do you mean by an industrial arms race? So the world seems to be going a bit crazy over manufacturing at the moment, mostly for political reasons. In the West, governments are spending vast amounts of money to subsidize manufacturing, especially chip making and those making green technologies such as batteries. And they say they're fighting climate change, reducing the reliance on autocracies, correcting four decades of of globalization during which workers suffered and, and growth slowed. And in the emerging world, governments hope subsidies can give them a foothold in the supply chains as worried Western companies move production out of China, which itself build its industrial base with the extensive use of subsidies. And how much are these governments spending to do all that? What's the scale of the subsidies we're talking about here? 
Oh, we're talking about huge sums here. The estimated 10-year cost of America's green subsidies has risen to $660 billion since they were signed into law. Independent estimates are even higher than that, over $1 trillion. US dollars. We've recently seen a case in Germany where the government was forced to increase the subsidies for just one plant from around 7 billion to 10 billion euros. And India's central government is spending on one micron factory, which will assemble and test chips, an amount equal to a quarter of its annual higher education budget. And if you, you know, look close at home in Britain, the opposition Labour Party wants to spend 28 billion pounds a year on green handouts, which as a share of GDP, would be nearly 10 times bigger even than America's spending is. Okay, yeah, that is that is a lot of money. Why are they spending so much subsidizing manufacturing? What's the plan? The most pressing concern at the moment is that you want to be more independent of geopolitical rivals, especially on goods such as advanced technology or critical raw materials, some of which even have important military uses. The second, there's climate change. You know, we know that a carbon price would be more efficient than doling out subsidies, but it's politically difficult. So politicians instead want to subsidize the green stuff, ideally on things that are made at home so citizens feel a wider economic benefit. The third is jobs, right? The good old manufacturing jobs, those that were lost over time. And politicians hope to bring some of them back through these subsidies. And finally, there are examples where industrial policy has helped to boost growth and innovation. So towards the end of the 20th century, South Korea and Taiwan achieved quite spectacular growth with the careful promotion of manufacturing exports. And on paper, there could be advantages of helping companies now to move early into new markets and technologies to build clusters around them for future innovation and growth. So there are a bunch of reasons for doing that. And you mentioned earlier that there are economic dangers for us to be aware of. Tell me a bit more about those. So as we discussed, the governments are spending a lot of money on this. And in part, this is a a zero-sum game, right? Already now, firms are subsidy shopping and states feel forced to outbid each other to attract that kind of investment, even though, globally speaking, we don't necessarily need more stuff. Western countries are also not pursuing the kind of catch-up growth, as it was the case in South Korea or Taiwan, but they are fighting over cutting-edge technology, and the growth benefits of the current push for manufacturing are probably overstated. Even more so, we create duplication in the production process, right? And that reduces the gains of specialization and raising costs and hitting economic growth. And as for jobs, in America, manufacturing jobs are already paying less than comparable services jobs. And the latest high-tech manufacturing that countries are trying to attract requires fairly little low-skilled labor. So there will almost inevitably be disappointment when the jobs miracle is not coming. So why are governments pushing ahead despite the fact that these policies risk harming economies more than they boost them? Well, that's the problem with an arms race, right? You don't want to be the one left behind. And European leaders think they must match America's handouts or face, you know, catastrophic deindustrialization or being economically left behind. But that's probably not true. I mean, countries will always have something to export. And second example, German firms that specialize in building factories, well, they are thriving because the U.S. is subsidizing the building of factories, right? And that's the basic logic of comparative advantage set out by David Ricardo in the 19th century. 
in terms of growth, there's no clear relationship between having a big manufacturing sector and economic growth. For example, take Denmark. There's no car industry to speak of in Denmark, but the GDP per person in Denmark is 10% higher than it is in Germany, for example. And it is also doubtful that we will be left behind in Europe if some firms build their factories in the US first. So a battery factory, for example. Of course, firms currently are going to the US because there are large subsidies to be gained. And so they may be incentivized to build the factory first in the US, but then are likely to build a similar factory in Europe as well because batteries are usually produced close to where they're being used. The main good reason, I think, is the point about diverse suppliers and less dependence on autocracies. But there are better ways to do that than to subsidize manufacturing at home. But if subsidizing manufacturing isn't the way, then what's an alternative? What would you suggest? So by subsidizing manufacturing, you cannot possibly achieve all these four goals together. If you think about diversifying supply chains, of course, building it at home is one way, but working with third countries to build their industries so they are different suppliers across the world is the better strategy and the much more economically efficient strategy. If we're talking about good jobs, it's important to create good jobs in a society, but creating good jobs in the economy overall is a very messy bottom-up process that tax credits for electric vehicles cannot replace, right? And on climate, we know that a carbon price is a lot more efficient to fight climate change. So there are many ways in which you can improve this agenda to make it much more targeted on what you actually want to solve. I think the appeal of this manufacturing idea also comes from the fact that it seems to suggest that there's one policy lever, namely to subsidize domestic manufacturing, which can cure at the same time many different ills. And I think that is a misconception. And lastly, what do you think it will take for countries to wake up to that economic reality that there might be better ways to do this? I think that will take time. Um, They have invested too much into the narrative that manufacturing at home is the cure for a lot of the ills. And it also has quite broad political support within countries, I think. That being said, there are a couple of failures already emerging, right? So the state of New York spent $1 billion building Tesla a solar panel factory where the company is paying $1 a year to lease that factory. According to reporting, the only new nearby business is a coffee shop. Such failures will become more frequent and the high costs will come into focus. And at that point, I think there will have to be a rethink, but I'm not holding my breath. Christian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Ora. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. A few weeks ago, I met a Nigerian woman called Elizabeth. I met her on a Sunday after she went to church. 
My name is uh, Obweza Elizabeth Aruru, and I came to Japan in 1991, March 23, thereabouts. So, and I've been in Japan since then. She's been living in Japan as an asylum seeker for more than three decades. Moeka Ida writes about Japan for The Economist. Initially, Elizabeth left her home country because of female genital mutilation. She was telling me some very grim stories about the people around her who had gone through the practice. My two cousins, we used to go to school together, elementary school. They were performing on them. You know, they bled to death. So I saw with my eyes. Actually, a lot of asylum seekers come to Japan. So when people are seeking asylum, they usually apply for as many countries as possible to get a short-term tourist visa or an entry permit. Japan happens to be one of the few countries offering a tourist visa. Elizabeth jumped at the opportunity. But after she arrived, Elizabeth applied for refugee status here. Her application was rejected. She reapplied and she's currently on her second round of application. As an asylum seeker without an official visa, she has very limited rights in Japan. She doesn't have a work permit, so she doesn't have an income, which means she has to rely on food handouts and support from volunteers. In 2011 and 2016, authorities suddenly decided to detain her and Elizabeth spent nearly two years in a detention center, and that included seven months of solitary confinement. Even after she managed to come out, her freedom continued to be restricted. This is my uh, permission to come to the church. You see all the places I go, I take. Uh, they keep track of where you're going? Yes, yes you have to I have go. to go there and take this. Sadly, Elizabeth's experience isn't uncommon. Japan is notorious for turning its back on refugees. It usually accepts just around 1% or less than 1% of refugee applicants each year. Last year, for instance, it accepted just around 200 refugees, which is a very miserable figure, but that was still the highest number to date. Just to put that into context, Germany accepted around 40,000 refugees in 2021. So why is it that so few of those applications are actually granted? In general, Japan takes a very strict approach to immigration, which is very ironic because Japan faces demographic challenges, including an aging and shrinking population, which has made the country increasingly reliant on foreign workers. There was new data released recently that said Three million foreigners are now living in Japan, which is a record high. But just because the country is more reliant on foreign workers doesn't mean it's become more generous. So Japan tends to accept foreigners as short-term workers who do the kind of jobs Japanese people don't want to do, low-paying, physically taxing, blue-collar jobs. But authorities are reluctant to accept foreigners as long-term or permanent stayers who are integrated into the community and enjoy the same rights as a Japanese citizen. And when it comes to refugees, the government has maintained its hardline approach. If you look at government documents, the language they use is very revealing. They use terms like fake refugees or people pretending to be refugees, and they argue that these people are 
abusing the system to simply enter the country. They also tend to paint foreigners as criminals or terrorists. And as terrible as all of this sounds, things are about to get even worse for refugees in Japan. As if it could. I mean, what's changing? So currently, people like Elizabeth, for instance, are able to technically stay in the country indefinitely by making their applications repeatedly. And while their applications are viewed, authorities aren't able to deport them. But the Japanese government passed a bill changing the immigration law. And under that new bill, if you're an asylum seeker who has applied for refugee status three times already, then you could potentially be deported. The basic idea is to ramp up deportations and As one human rights lawyer put it, that's basically like pressing the execution button for people who need protection. I asked Elizabeth how she felt about this. You know, I'd be so afraid of them, the new bill, new bill, so I put it behind me. You you try not to think about it? Yeah, yeah. It's not not necessary thinking about it. Mm. How are your friends? feeling about this? Yeah, all of them are afraid. I keep on telling them, you know, just believe in God. Two years ago, the Japanese government actually tried to pass the same bill, but there was a huge scandal back then. A young Sri Lankan woman called Wishmasanda Mali died in custody. She died inside a detention centre. There's footage of her lying on a bed inside the detention centre and showing her final moments. She has to go to hospital and she's begging the staff to take her to hospital, but they denied her request. She was the 17th person to die in detention since 2007. And the bill was blocked because of a public outcry. And how do Japanese people feel about this law? What's what's the reaction to tightening these things up? Does it reflect what people want? In Japan, immigration policies and refugee policies have never gained that much attention. And as terrible as this new bill is, the silver lining is that it's creating a lot of public debate and there's a huge backlash. On June 8th, when the bill was passed, thousands of people gathered outside of parliament. Japan is also facing a lot of pressure from outside. The UN has urged Japan to take more refugees. So activists haven't given up yet. They're still hoping the bill will be abolished before it takes effect in May next year. Until then, Elizabeth will keep speaking up about her experiences and praying she's able to stay in Japan. Most of the Africa that came here, they are refugees. They know. The Ethiopia, there is war there. Sudan, there is war there, Nigeria, Uganda, they are killing Christians there. So save life. Don't take those who did not commit crime back to their country. This is my plea to the government. Moika, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Walk around the old historic center of Los Alamos, New Mexico, and J. Robert Oppenheimer greets you at every turn. Erin Braun is The Economist's West Coast correspondent. 
the local event center, which hosted an Oppenheimer festival to celebrate the release of Christopher Nolan's new film about the father of the atomic bomb. This is a national emergency. It's just off Oppenheimer Drive. Detonator's charged. A bronze statue of Oppenheimer, dapper hat and pipe included, stands on a street corner. The local pub offers Oppenheimer trivia. To pay homage to the Trinity test, the detonation of Oppenheimer's bomb in the New Mexican desert, there is Trinity Drive, Trinity Urgent Care, and Trinity on the Hill Episcopal Church. When Oppenheimer was recruited to run the Manhattan Project in 1942, he chose to build his laboratories in Los Alamos. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. The site, in the government's view, was an ideal place for bomb building. The desert mesas and ponderosa pine forests offered solitude and secrecy. But Oppenheimer also had a personal reason for picking the land of enchantment. Early in Nolan's film, Oppenheimer, played by Killian Murphy, admits to being homesick for New Mexico, where he and his brother owned a ranch. When I was a kid, he says, I thought if I could find a way to mix physics and New Mexico, my life would be perfect. The most notable thing about the town, apart from its history and its vistas, is that it's home to the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is the successor to Oppenheimer's science campus. Research on nuclear weapons continues to this day. But the release of Nolan's film has residents rolling out the red carpet. Tourism there is surging. If you compare this year to last year, we are about double across the park. Wendy Berman runs the Manhattan Project National Historical Park. Last year, we had about uh, 27,000 visitors um, across the three sites. But again, right now, we're just about there, and we still have the other half of the year to go. So I think there will be interest. I think it will help us sort of engage a little bit more with the younger generations. And so I think this is an opportunity for us to connect with them. Locals are still starstruck, even a year after Hollywood's glitterati descended on their stretch of desert. But I believe I was there when Nolan decided to film in the Oppenheimer house. I could see it in his eyes. Leslie Link gives tours for the Los Alamos Historical Society. She is speaking as part of a panel discussion at the Oppenheimer Festival about what it was like for locals involved in helping Christopher Nolan's team with filming in the town. So I'm standing there by the door just trying to be as small and little as I can, you know, just trying to be quiet and not say anything. But my soul is going... (laughs) And... Nolan is the last guy to walk out. And he's walking, and he walks by me, and I couldn't help it. I go, do you feel the aura in this house? And he goes, oh, yeah. (laughs) So I believe it was that visit when they decided to film. I could be wrong. Nolan's film dwells on Oppenheimer's internal battle between his relentless pursuit of scientific inquiry and his moral qualms about the lethal purpose of his lab's invention. Yet Los Alamos's shrines to the Manhattan Project feel more celebratory than somber. Plaques around town salute the scientists whose work, quote, ended World War II and deterred global conflict. But a re-examination of Oppenheimer's legacy is slowly taking place here. 
Posters in the visitor center mentioned the Hispanic homesteaders and the Native American tribes that were forced off of their land so the government could build Oppenheimer's secret city. New Mexicans exposed to radiation from the Trinity test, known as downwinders, say their health was sacrificed for America's atomic advantage. The National Historical Park is now being sort of reimagined to include voices of people harmed by the Manhattan Project. Here's Wendy Berman again. We are amplifying some of the more difficult and complex parts of the stories. And that ranges for us around the topic of downwinders, around displacement, the broader sort of inclusivity of who made up the Manhattan Project from African-Americans to Latinos and their involvement in supporting the project across all three sites and on the impact to our tribes, not only from a displacement perspective, but from a legacy perspective. Perhaps Los Alamos's newfound fame will hasten that retelling. But for now, the town is all Oppenheimer all the time. As the audience is reminded by the film's eventual villain, Louis Strauss, Robert built that place. He was founder, mayor, and sheriff, all rolled into one. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you're really missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link, as always, is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. to write for work want to improve bolster your skills with economist Education's six-week online course you'll explore the craft of writing and learn from the economist editors how to engage and persuade whether it's vibrant memos pithy social media posts or storytelling with data and as a listener enjoy a 15% discount with the code writing so sign up now at economist.com forward slash business writing 